This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers and listeners. To, uh, tonight we are learning Le'ilui Nishmat Rafael Fuad Ben Rina Rita and also Le'ilui Nishmat Yecheskel Ben Avraham and finally Le'ilui Nishmat Avraham Ben Chaim Yehuda. So tonight we are going on, we're continuing with our Muna series and I have to give a little bit of like a, I guess a pre-introduction. The, I, when I word the classes, I don't put it, I, I'm, the way that the Muna classes work is going to be in sections. So right now we're dealing with the difficulty sections, with the suffering sections, with the hardship section. And it's actually quite a, uh, you know, quite a few classes in that section. Then we'll deal with a section regard, related to money issues. Uh, maybe we'll do a class also on Shiduchim. We'll do also on how much Ishtar do. We'll have different, different sections on it. So today, you know, lately we've been focusing a lot on the suffering and the difficulties in life. And we're gonna, we're almost finished that that section of it. But one thing that I do want to uh, give as a sort of a pre-introduction is that even though we speak about the benefit of suffering, which is really what, what our topic is going to be tonight, and the concept that one has to keep in mind is that even though there are good things that come after it, doesn't mean that we shouldn't do our hishtadlut, our effort to get out of the suffering. Meaning that we should pray to get out of the suffering, that we should try to avoid our difficulties, we should try to, you know, fix our problems. But, that being said, even once we have the problems, what we're dealing with is how to deal with it. But nevertheless, you should still go and try to get, uh, you know, try to get out of it. Now, the reason why this is so important, especially the suffering time, and I have to say that um, when I was preparing this whole series, the suffering was going to be at the end of the series. The reason that it was moved up to the to this part of the series was really because of coronavirus. Uh, so because of coronavirus, the people, it was more apropos, I think, to speak about it now, so I moved it up. But... The concept of this, uh, of the, the difficulties in life and how to deal with it is so important because our mood in life, in the day, whatever it is, depends on our perception. Now, for example, think of it like this. This is a good example. Somebody goes and purchases something. You go and you buy something. Whatever it is, a big purchase, whether it is a car, a house, um, something big, something that costs a lot, a lot of money. Now, you could either feel good after that purchase or you could feel very bad after that purchase. And one main factor as an example would be, let's say you feel you got a really good deal. Let's say you bought a car and you paid $20,000 for this car. And then afterwards you were like, I don't know, should I have I bought in this car? It's a lot of money. Maybe I shouldn't have money. It's tight now. I don't know what I should have done. And then you find out that this car is really worth $40,000 then all of a sudden, you know what? You feel really good about your purchase. And all of a sudden, you're like, no, you know what? It's good. I got a good deal. And you feel good about it. On the flip side, let's say you buy this car and it's $20,000 and you're very happy. You're driving and you're in the best mood. You're cruising down the highway, enjoying your new wheels. And then all of a sudden, you get a phone call from a friend who's selling the same exact car for $10,000. And you're like, what? If I would have waited just a few more days, I would have been able to save $10,000. How are you going to feel now on the purchase? You're going to feel terrible about the purchase. You're going to regret it. You're going to say, oh, I wish I wouldn't have bought it. So in one aspect, you want it. You're so happy with the purchase. Another aspect, you're very depressed about the purchase. But it's the same exact purchase. What's the difference if you're happy or you're upset about it? It all depends on your perception. In this particular example, did you get a good deal or did you not get a good deal? So in life, when we think about our problems, our issues, our situations, if we think that we got a good deal, then we'll be very, very happy no matter what it is. Now, even look at this example, going back to our example, let's say you bought the car and you found out that it's worth double the amount of money. So you're very happy. But let, let's say something breaks in the car. Are you going to be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I paid $20,000 and now this thing broke? You'd be like, no, okay, fine. I'll spend $200 to fix it, $300, $400 to fix it. It's still worth $40,000. So even the bad, is it's not so bad. Okay, you, you look at the good of it. You have a different perception on, on the purchase, on a different uh, um, understanding on what's good and what's bad, what you enjoy, what don't, what, what don't you enjoy. So in life, when you think about it like this, if we're very happy with our situation, then everything is going to be like, okay, it's going, to, it's going to be okay. It's not a big deal. I got a great deal. I'm alive. It's a great deal. I'm able to see. It's a great deal. I'm able to walk. It's a great deal. There's so many different things that you, we have that we could appreciate. And then all of a sudden, it changes our mood. Now, it's needless to say that how important our mood is. 
our if it's if you don't understand how important your mood is, then you're missing the core aspect of your happiness. If somebody goes and someone's happy, everything is better. Everything the food tastes better. The sun shines brighter. The water tastes better. Like things are just better, happier, amazing. And the flip side, you're down, you're depressed. Everything is difficult. Everything is difficult. Whether it's going out on dates, whether it's doing business, no matter what it is, it's difficult. So that being said, um, it is very important when we speak about these types of topics to understand the, the importance of how we perceive it and how we're going to go and internalize it and what our takeaway is going to be from it. Many people, I'm, I'm sorry, let's back up a little bit. Every single person has some, some difficulties that they go through in their life. Some more, some others. And you know something very interesting? There's some people that they get, let's say, you know, they're, I don't know, they bump their finger. And their day is ruined. They're cursing out from today until tomorrow. Their whole like God is screaming at them. God is angry at them because of this. There's another person that could have 13 bad things happen before his 8 o'clock coffee. And he's still in a great mood. And it all depends on how we perceive certain things. Rabbi Victor Miller goes and says that one of the greatest... No, let me rephrase that. The word that he uses is there is no greater gift. This is like the best gift in the world. There's no greater gift... Then Yisurim, then suffering, before dying, specifically before the dying. Why? Because this is an exchange for the Gehenom, for, for going to Gehenom. And he goes on and says, you know, when Hitler, when Hitler went, and how did he die? He took a certain poison and he uh, basically killed himself very peacefully. So people go and say, you know what, this guy didn't even suffer in this world. Oh, if we would have gotten his hand on him and we were able to go and he beaten him and burned him and live and who knows what the torture that people would have wished to, to befall upon him. And people think that he got away easy. He went and he took some cyanide and he passed away peacefully, let's say, in his sleep. Says Rabbi Victor Miller, no, no, no. The worst thing that Hitler could have done was take that poison. Because now he leaves everything to the next world. If he would have had, went through some suffering, then he would have taken some, again, you know, the amount of suffering that this guy needs to get through is endless. But still, it would have taken away something that he would have had to go through in the next world. But because he went and he took, it, it took his life in the most peaceful way possible, he went and he's now going to go and suffer to the utmost extent in the next world. Furthermore, the concept of suffering, the concept of difficulties, does something very, very significant to your personality. It takes the arrogance of the person, puts it in a blender, blends it into a juice, and then you could drink it like nothing, because it destroys it. So it makes a person realize on the importance of the next world. And I want to share with you a story from Rav Shalom Sharabi. Rav Shalom Sharabi was known as the Rashash. He lived in the 1700s. He was known as one of the greatest Kabbalists in his time. And before and after his time as well. He lived in Yerushalayim in Jerusalem. And in there, there lived a very plain and simple Jew by the name of Rachamim. Now for Rachamim, life wasn't really easy for him. He went and his panasah, his livelihood, was transporting dirt and stones from one home to another place, from one location to another place. He was the logistic of transporting um, dirt and stones. And because his livelihood was so hard for him, he would go over to his rabbi, which is the Rashash, of Shalom Sharabi, and he'd go and he would beg him. He says, please, you got to help me out. Please bless me. Please pray for me. I have a wife and ten children. I can't support my family. I don't have enough panasa. I don't have enough livelihood. And the big tzaddik, the big rabbi, will goes and blesses him. But unfortunately, months go by and nothing comes into fruition. He tries again. And it seems as all, as if these prayers and the blessings of the tzaddik were refused in heaven. There was no change in Rachamim's life. There was no change in his mazal. There was no change in his financial um, freedom. Finally, he comes up with a great idea. He goes over to the rabbi and he says, You know, I heard there's a place called America. And in America, one can find work easily. And you don't have to work so hard. You can make a lot of money. It will, be, it will be so convenient. I'll go there. I'll live an easier life. I'll work less. I'll earn more. I'll be able to support my family and provide all their needs with, with abundance. So the Rashash gets very serious. He says, what? He rejected this idea completely. He says, absolutely not. He says, you're going to go over there. Back then, you know, the, you know, the America was completely void of Torah, of, of Yiddishkeit. There was, no, there was no Jewish presence in America. Uh, whoever the Jews were here were not able to keep strong to their religious observance because there was not a strong foundation. There was no schools, there was no infrastructure for the Jewish life. 
So the rabbi goes over and says, you know, the food is not kosher over there. The education is not kosher over there. Even the streets are not kosher over there. How are you going to be able to go and retain your Jewish identity? You're going to go and you're going to lose all your spiritual possessions, your spiritual reward for a few cheap pleasures in the next world? He says, absolutely not. Do not go. So he goes and he says, fine, you know, this Rachamim was not a big Talmud Chacham. He was not a great scholar, but he had Emunat Chachamim. He believed in the sages and he says, whatever you say, Rabbi. The Rabbi goes and says, you don't understand that every time you're spending over here, even if you're suffering, because you're doing it for the sake of Hashem, you're investing over here. It's a mitzvah for you. So he goes on and he continues to return to his work and his difficult life of transporting dirt and stones. Several months go by and he's constantly thinking about Imagine his, his imagination is going off and he's imagining himself as a wealthy man in America with plenty of horses, a swimming pool in his backyard. It's like a great, great life. And he couldn't bear it anymore. He's like, I can't. I'm suffering. I can't put food on the table. He goes over to his rabbi, goes into the rabbi's study. And he says, Rabbi, it's been several months that you advised me to continue struggling over here. And you know what? I tried it. But I can't do it anymore. I can't go on there because I have to feed my children. What am I supposed to do? So the rabbi goes, he goes to him and says, don't worry, don't go, it's not worth it, don't go to America. Each minute you're getting over here, endless reward. There's no measure of the value of your suffering that you're going for because you're doing it for the proper education of your children. But unfortunately, Rachamim was not convinced. He says, it's true what you're saying, rabbi, but I just can't do it anymore. I decided I'm going to America. I came here just to ask of you for your blessing. So the rabbi saw that he can't convince Rachamim to do anything. He says, fine. He says, I'm going to grant you my blessing, and I'll even pray for you. But I ask you for one thing. I would like you to come and sit on my chair. So this Rachamim goes and says, what? Sit on the rabbi's chair? I can't sit on the rabbi's chair. That's not kavod. That's not honor. How am I supposed to do that? And the rabbi goes and says, no, no, no. I ask of you. I'm telling you. I'm, I want you to do it. No. He says, I'm commanding you. Sit in the chair. Before you go, sit in the chair. His rabbi commanded him. He has to listen to his rabbi. So he goes and he sits in the chair of the tzaddik. As soon as he sits down, Suddenly, he starts feeling very drowsy. His head is like starting to spin. And he feels himself as if he's traveling very, very far away. He goes to a different place, a different country, and all of a sudden, the, the picture starts clearing up. And he sees, he sees himself. He sees a vision of himself. And he sees that he is about to die. He's on his deathbed. And he's surrounded by his wife and his ten children. And one after another, his friends come to pay their last respects as he's, as he's about to leave this world. Then the Cheva Kadisha comes in and they bring him the stretcher that they're going to put him out to the Tarah where they're going to bring him into the Mikvah. And then before he goes and he passes away, the Cheva Kadisha goes and starts saying Vidui with him. And Rachamim starts mumbling the words and when he gets to Shema Yisrael, he starts screaming Shema Yisrael again and again, over and over again, each time louder and louder. And suddenly, he feels that his soul leaves him. He goes up into the next world. But it's interesting, he doesn't go straight up into heaven. He sort of floats above his body. And now he sees his dead body. And he sees his wife and his ten children all around. And he watches as they're each crying and sobbing around his bed. And as they get ready, he goes and he follows his body as they go to the mikvah. And they put him in the tarah. They prepare him for the burial. And they, get, they go en route to his burial. And he starts hearing the eulogies. And he hears the kaddish that his children are crying for him. And finally the last stage comes where they go into the cemetery and they start lowering his body into the grave. And as they lower the bodies into his grave, they start covering his grave with dirt. And finally it's fully covered with dirt and they leave to go back home. And he's sitting over there in the cemetery. He saw everyone. He heard everybody, but nobody saw him. And he's sitting over there and he's laying over there. All of a sudden there was a malach, an angel that comes by the name of Duma. This is the malach in charge of the dead people. He arrives at them and he says, come on, you're coming for the trial. You're coming in to, uh, to stand before the court. And he goes and he says, what is your name? After answering, Rachamim goes and, and, he tells, and he tells him, Rachamim, I am the Bethin's messenger and I've come to summon you to judgment for your actions. So Rachamim says, I'm ready. Where, where do I go? So he goes, this angel goes and sort of like sh- throws him into a, like a different world. And he says, you're going to take this path. And this path is a very, very long path. Keep on walking on this path. And there finally you'll come to a great square. And in this square, there's going to be a huge scale. A scale that could fit ships, airplanes, and whatnot on it. And he says, that's when you know, that's when you got to the place of where you're going to be judged. And he goes and he says, fine. And he starts walking on the path. 
and he's walking and he's walking and a day passes by, a week passes by and he keeps on going and there is nothing else inside, just this path. Finally, a few weeks go by and he hears a noise, a commotion going back from behind him and he turns around, he sees this vehicle it's traveling towards him and he goes to the side and behind this vehicle there's bags and bags of this like black sacks full of stuff and he sort of like you know hails it down and he says you know uh and sort of he's like where are you going and there were two angels over there it says we're uh we're heading to the judgment and he says i see you have some space in the back over there. there's a little corner that was not filled with these big black bags and says can you please uh give me a ride and they start laughing. He says, there's no hitchhiking over here. He says, you got to go, you know, everyone fends it for themselves over here. So he goes, okay, fine. But can you tell me, he says, what's in the bags? He says, we're in the next world. You don't need to eat. You don't need to drink. He says, what do you need to carry? What type of possessions do you need? So the angels are like, oh, this? Oh, he says, yeah, these are your sins. Uh, we're traveling it to the, you know, to the, uh, to the courtroom to put it on the scale. And he's like, well, those are my sins? And they're like, yeah. <laughs> you'll wait till you see what comes next. And they continue driving. Not too long goes by and another vehicle comes by. This one even bigger than the first and this one has even more sacks. And again, he tries to hitch a ride and they start saying, they start laughing. He says, you can't hitch a ride over here. And he says, can you do me a favor? Can you, what, what are these sacks? And they're like, yeah, these are your sins. And one vehicle after another vehicle after another vehicle goes by, each with sins. And he's thinking, he's like, how many mitzvot, how many positive deeds do I need to be able to flip the scales? There's no way that I'm going to be able to do it. He's looking over there, he's like, there's so much. In his mind, he's picturing, that's it, I'm going to get home. There's no way out of this. Finally, all of a sudden, there comes this beautiful white stretched limousine that comes by. And in there, there is a little trunk. And in the trunk, there's like one little packet that's a white packet with a gold embroidery around it uh, that says mitzvot on it. And he stops this limousine and he says, can you do me a favor, what's, uh, what's that? And he's like, oh, these are your mitzvot. And Nachman is like, oh yeah, and I'm going to get a bunch of other like, uh, vehicles that come with uh, other white things. And they're like, no, you know, this is it, I'm the last one. And he's like, what, this is mine? And he starts sweating. He's like, there is no hope for me. I am done. He goes and the vehicle travels away and he continues walking. A short time goes by and he reaches this huge scale and he sees on the scale that it's filled to the top to the brim with these black bags. On the other side, there's this little tiny little pecola sitting on one side, this white little bag and a little Ziploc bag sitting over there. And the judges are looking over there and be like, okay, this is not a difficult case. You know, bring him downstairs, open the hatch, let him go take the shortcut down. We have a shoot. And all of a sudden, there's an angel that screams out. It's like, wait, 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 I got something I need to add. And everyone's quiet, and they come in, and they bring his donkey. And everyone's looking at the donkey, like, what, do you, what does the donkey have to do with anything? How, what type of mitzvot did he do with his donkey? So the angel says, no, you don't understand that he went through suffering to be able to go and support his family with this donkey. He didn't move into America. He didn't go to, across the seas to be able to go and keep his children in a kosher environment. And they said, oh, yeah? Okay, so they put, they put the donkey on the scale. Then they put some rocks and stones that he used to carry as well. But still, it was nowhere close to where they would balance out. And then one angel said, said, wait a minute. He says, why only the donkey? He went through so many sufferings. What about his headaches? What about his difficulties in his life? Everything that he took with a smile and he took with him, this got to go on the scale. And they said, you're right. And they started coming in in truckloads, all the suffering that he had in his life. And he had a lot of suffering. And the pile is getting higher and higher. And all of a sudden, the, the scales are balanced out. And it was just... When the last sack, the white last sack of the good mitzvot came out over there, it was just shy of tipping the scale to his favor. And he was screaming, he's like, no, you got to get me something else, you got to get me something else. And they were like, no, there's nothing else to discuss. This is everything. We went and we searched for high and low from the day you were born to the day you died. We got everything. And they said, there's nothing else that we could do, but you're going downstairs. And two mean-looking angels come up to him and they're about to grab him. And as they grab him, he starts screaming, more suffering, more suffering, more suffering. And he wakes up. And he's sitting back in the Rashash's chair. And he's looking around. And the Rashash is sitting over there looking at him. He's like, is everything okay? And he smiles at his rabbi. He says, you know, rabbi, I'm going to stay right here. <laughs> he says, I got it. I'm going to stay where I, where, where I am right now. I am not willing to forego any suffering. 
Achamim goes and returns home, but this time he's not bemoaning. He's not. He's not down on his fate. Every time he has a difficulty, he's accepting it. He's like, "Oh, bring it on! It's going to tip the scales." He saw it. Says Rabbeinu Yoyna in Shari Tshuva. He goes and he says that suffering is actually a one of a person's achievements in his life. You know, people go and achieve, what do they achieve in their life? They can say, okay, you know, my marriage, that I achieved in it. My children, I achieved something with my children. Baruch Hashem, my work, I was able to make a lot of money. Maybe I completed certain masachot, I went and I learned a lot, I was able to teach, I did certain accomplishments. But says Rabbeinu Yonah, if he does not put suffering on his list, his list is incomplete. Pain endured during your lifetime is one of life's achievement. Especially if it's accepted with love. And in fact, if, if the pain is accepted with love, it's one, it's one of life's greatest achievements. HaKadosh Baruch Hu told Avraham Avinu that he was going to destroy the city of Sodom. And you know what Avraham did? One of the longest prayers in the Torah, Avraham prayed for this wicked city of sinners that they should not be destroyed. And he says, maybe if there's X amount of sinners, you're not going to destroy it. Maybe if there's 50, maybe if there's 40, maybe if there's 30. And they couldn't find that there's a very, very long section of prayer in the, in the prayer for, for Sodom. Then there's something very interesting. When Avraham Avinu was told in the Brit Ben Hapsarim that his children and his grandchildren, his old descendants, are going to go through difficult, difficult suffering. They're going to be slaves for hundreds of years. Avraham Avinu did not offer not one single prayer. And the question is why? Why is it that Avraham was willing to offer a, one of the longest prayers in the Torah? For the sinners. But for his own children, he did not offer a prayer. Maybe save them from the Egyptians. Maybe make their load a little bit lighter. Why didn't he pray for them? And the answer is, that when God showed Avraham the suffering in Egypt, he also showed the benefit of every minute of slavery, of what it would do for them. Each brick, each ounce of toil, each sweat and each whip, would be the greatest gift for them. Because after all that, they these... His descendants, the Jewish nation, is going to receive the greatest gift ever to mankind. The Holy Torah Kedoshah. And Avraham Avinu saw with such clarity how beneficial this Torah is, he realized that there's a purpose for each struggle. So what he's going to say? No, it's coming with the Torah. Now there's something very interesting. When Let's say you have two people working in the same job, but two different companies. One company, the conditions are very, very harsh. The temperature is hot or cold. They don't make much breaks. It's very strict. But they make $350,000 for that job. Then there's the same job in a different company. The work is easier. The temperature is regulated. You get a nice amount of breaks. Everyone's nice to you. You, have the, you don't have Keurigs. You have Nespresso machines. You have the massage chairs with the zero gravities in the office. It's the best environment possible. You're able to go and play golf and whatever it is. It's the best of everything. But they only pay $60,000. So you have over here, you know, one job that pays $350,000. Another job that pays $60,000. It's the same job. The only difference is, is one is more difficult environment than the other one. How many people would choose the lower paying job? Majority of the majority of people are going to choose for $350,000 so much more money. They'll choose the more difficult one. They'll rather go through the suffering because it's worth so much more. And it's something very interesting. You know, there are certain companies uh, that sort of, uh, let's call it stretch their employees. Um, and what they try to do is that they try to get one person to do the job of, let's say, two, three, or sometimes even four people. And I've seen, I've dealt with you know, people in that, uh, in that situation where they were working. I know one person was working for a job that really four people needed to do it. Four people. And they were only getting paid slightly more than they would have. So let's say for argument's sake, they were, they were, this job goes for $50,000. The, so they were making $60,000. But they were doing a job for four, four different people. Now, if the company would have been smart, what they would have done is they would have given this person $100,000 for this job. Why? Because this, even though this person is doing a job for four people, which is equals up to $200,000, but they're paying it for $100,000. But what's going to happen now? He's going to go and he's, or she's going to say, he says, you know what, my job is so difficult, I'm working for four people. But the problem is that if this person leaves and goes to a different job, they're going to only be making $50,000. For a pay cut that much, it's not worth it for somebody to go and lose such a pay cut. So they rather go and suffer the difficulties because they know this is what they're going, they're going to be making up so much more money. The problem is, is that a lot of companies don't think like that way. 
So they end up stretching them, and people start leaving, and then there's a turnover rate. But if they would be smart, and they have somebody that's good, that's working for two, three, four people, it, it's beneficial for them to pay them more, so much more money that it doesn't pay for them to go somewhere else. So the idea over here is, is that we're in this world, and we have a job. And our job could be very similar to somebody else's job. Different, but it could be similar. But if our job is just slightly more difficult, we're already getting paid 10 times, 10, 5, 10, even 100 times more. And in fact, the answer is, it really is 100 times more. It says the Avos de Rab Nasan. In the third chapter, it says a mitzvah that is done with a little hardship is worth 100 times more than a mitzvah that was done easily. And Rav Dessler goes and explains. And he says, if you have a little tzav, if you have a little suffering during a mitzvah, it's as if you have done this mitzvah 100 times. So let's say you're going and you're sitting in this class and you're, let's say you're not in the mood. You want to go sign off and you need to go do whatever. And it's difficult. And you push yourself to go and listen to Torah. You push yourself to go and make a bracha with kavanah. And it's difficult for you. It's as if you listen to a hundred classes. It's as if you made a hundred brachot. It's as if, if you go and let's say it's very difficult for you to dress modestly. It's very difficult for you to guard your eyes. And you guard your eyes, you dress modestly. Whatever it is that you're doing, that counts as if you did it a hundred times. That's if you did it with one little suffering. But let's say you have two measures of suffering. Let's say you're tired and you have a headache. Two different things, right? Let's say you have two measures of suffering. So then it counts a hundred times a hundred. It counts, you get paid as if you did 10,000 mitzvot, even though you only did one, says Rav Dessler. Meaning, says Rav Dessler, that we should be so much more excited about doing mitzvot with difficulty than without difficulty. Now, when a person has suffering, whether it's a headache, whether it's with the children, with the health, with panasah, with you know finding a shidur, with getting a little bit of whatever the situation is, a little bit of humility from different areas, and he continues or she continues to do the mitzvot with joy and happiness, the value of each mitzvah that we get grows dramatically with every single drop of suffering that you have. Meaning that the suffering that you get is worth so much in the next world that it counts as if you did that mitzvah a hundred times. That's, that's crazy. You talk, everyone loves shortcuts. Now, I'm not saying you should put yourself in suffering. I'm not saying you should go and learn where it's hot. I'm not saying that you should go and put yourself in difficulties because it's going to make it so much worth. But if God already sends it, again, we're not asking God to send us suffering. We're not asking for difficulty. But if God already sends it to us, realize the difficulties, realize the value. And by the way, this doesn't have to be a huge thing, even a small little thing. You're tired in the morning. You want to go on, you, you don't want to pray so long. You want to zip through and you decide you're going to pray a little bit slower, even though you're tired, even though you have your headache, even though you didn't get drink your coffee yet. That counts as a hundred prayers. Utilize the value that we have. There was once a, a man by the name of Eli. And this Eli was a Hungarian teenager who was separated from his family the first few minutes when they arrived in Auschwitz concentration camp. And this Eli was very lucky because he slept alongside a person by the name of Rabbi Mendel. This Rabbi Mendel was a great tzaddik. He was a son of a big tzaddik. And despite the fact that he lost his wife and his children, this tzaddik, he still was on a very high level. So much so that he infused Eli daily with emunah and bitachon. And it kept, this kept him alive even more so than the food, the little food, the bread rations that the Nazis, Yemach gave uh, Eli. And suddenly, one day, the rabbi goes over to Eli and he says, you know, Pesach is fast approaching. And he says, we have to make a seder. We have to make a Pesach seder. He says, so the rabbi says, we have plenty of mal, we have plenty of bitterness. Just look around, we have plenty of that. But how are we going to get matzot? How are we going to bake matzot over here in the middle of Auschwitz? And Eli looked at this rabbi's eyes and he saw tears in his eyes. And it was, it was like such a, a you know, mind-boggling experience. And he says, what, this rabbi has tears in his eyes? He says, we're in the concentration camp. And God has forgotten about us already. And over here, he's crying because he can't do a mitzvah. And it felt so bad for his rabbi. He says, you know what, let me see what I can do. Let me see if I'm able to smuggle somehow some matzot for you. Now, Eli worked in a certain factory in the camp, and right near this, ca- this factory, there was a complex that stored warehouses of wheat. Now, if it was somehow possible, he tried to figure out a way that he would be able to sneak in and steal a little bit of wheat, and without knowing, the, without getting the guards, you know, to you know, to, to see him, and bring it back to the camp. And he knew that if he gets caught, the penalty is death, immediate death. 
and or severe, severe beating. Finally, Eli is scouting this entire area, and finally he realizes there's a little break where he, you know, everyone makes a turn, and he could sneak in and see if he, hopefully he'll be able to sneak some flour. He goes and he's traveling, he's looking at all the guards, and as they turn the corner, he immediately runs into the factory and he sneaks in, and he goes behind one machine, behind another machine, until he gets to the place where the wheat is stored, and he grabs, you know, a few stalks of wheat, and he goes into the corner, and he takes two stones and he starts grinding and pounding the wheat until it becomes coarse flour. And he takes the flour and he hides it in this room in the corner. And he goes back out and he continues his work. The next day, he takes his water, that everyone gets a little ration of water, he takes his water and he brings it to his hiding spot. And he mixes it with that little uh, flour that he had and it makes some sort of paste that roughly resembles something called dough. And he made sure that he had enough for two kazasim, two measurements, one for Elia and one for Rab Mendel, that they will be each able to have and be yotze the mitzvah of matzah on Pesach. And he takes this matzah that he just was able to procure, and he hides it in his shirt. And sometimes when you're hiding something, you look, you know, suspicious. But he tried to make himself look not suspicious as possible, walking, and all of a sudden a Nazi says, wait a minute, why are you walking funny? He says, you. He calls him out of line. He says, what do you got? Because they would go and they would search for contraband for, to make sure that nobody's sneaking everything. And he says, no, nothing, I got nothing. And he picks up his hand really quickly. And as he picks it up, the, the matzot, they, they drop on the floor. And the Nazi sees it and they sort of lock eyes and he freezes. And the Nazi takes out his bat and he starts hitting him one after another. And he feels his head going from one side to another side. He feels blood dripping down his face. And all of a sudden he gets like one final blow and he knocks down. He falls on the floor unconscious. He wakes up by one of his inmates going and sprinkling some water from a nearby puddle on his head. And he, they were like, quickly, get up, get up, before the Nazi comes back. And the Nazi left, just go, get, get back to your room. And he wakes up, Ellie wakes up, he, you know, he wipes away the blood so he could see a little bit, and he sees all the matzot that he collected was all crumbled and, and the, destroyed all over the floor. And he's sitting there, he says, look at what I've sacrificed for now. And he starts grabbing whatever matzot that he could, and he puts it back in his pocket, and he goes, and he goes back to the, to the dorm. He gets to the door, and all of a sudden he sees, you know, Remendel. Remendel sees of them. He says, what happened to your face? And Ellie goes and says, you're not going to believe what happened. He says, I got the wheat, and I started smuggling it out, and don't ask. And they started beating me. And he was like, he's like, are you okay? And he's like, I, almost, I literally almost died. So Remendel felt bad. He says, Did you, were you able to get the matzot? And he says, you know, Ellie takes out the matzot, and he says, you know, I prepared two measurements, two kezayism, that we would be able to each do the, have the biyotze, the, the mitzvah of matzah. But unfortunately, because of the beating I broke it, I only have one, one measurement, one kezayis left. So Ramendel goes over to him and he says, please, I'm begging of you, with every fiber in my being, let me be the one to eat the, 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 the matzah, please. And Aliko says, out of the question, I put my life in danger, I almost died for this, you want me to give it to you? And the rabbi goes and says, I've never missed eating matzah. They say there once in my life. How could I miss it now? And Ellie goes and says, I'm sorry, rabbi. I would love to give it to you, but I can't. I, I only have one. I got to keep it for myself. So the rabbi goes and says, Ellie, you know, I know the entire Haggadah by heart. I will recite it entirely for you, and you'll be able to recite it. Only, I will even say Shirashim for you. He says, Only please give me the matzah. Let me be Yotze the mitzvah of, of, of matzah. And Ellie says, You know, I can't, you know, I would love to, I, I, I just can't bring myself to do it. And he goes over and he says, listen, the rabbi goes over and says, listen, I lost my family. I lost my home. I am not willing to lose this mitzvah, mitzvah also. And he started crying. The rabbi started crying. I'm begging you, please, please give me the, this, this mitzvah. And the rabbi goes and he says, you know what, I'll do you one more. He says, I don't need the reward for this mitzvah. I give you the reward. I just want to do the mitzvah. So they arrived at the compromise, says, you give me the reward? Fine. You could eat it, but I get the reward. That night was Pesach. Ramendel and Eli went and they recited the Haggadah from the beginning to the end. And Ramendel went and he started eating the matzah. And then he goes and he started singing Halal. He started singing praises to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He started singing the, the Halal. He started singing songs. And he got into this level of spiritual ecstasy. He let his voice rise so loud that all of a sudden the Nazi gods heard them. They come breaking in the door and they see a guy praying. They were like, what? The Nazi was such in a bad mood. He says, a Jew praying on my watch? He takes out his revolver. And as this Rav Mendel is playing, he points it to his head and shoots it, bullet in the head. Rav Mendel, in middle of prayer, falls down on the floor and collapse it. Blood splatters everywhere.
and this vision, this is what Eli sees. He sees his rabbi over there in front of his face in pure spiritual ecstasy, just got his head, you know, shot. And this vision like haunted him. He saw this, he was shocked. He couldn't sleep for months after this. Baruch Hashem, Eli was able to survive the war. And he ended up moving to Eretz Israel. He ended up marrying a, and raising a beautiful family. And he ended up moving to Bnebak and a Kehillah and a congregation called the Chassam Sofer Kehillah. Thirty years go by and all of a sudden this Eli has a dream. And it's none other than Reb Mendel. His face is glowing like the sun. And Reb Mendel goes over to Eli and says, you know, I have a request for you. And he says, do you remember when we were in, the, in you know, Auschwitz? And we had that matzah. And I ate it and you got the reward. And <laughs> Ellie goes, remember, I says, how could I forget that vision haunts me every single night before I go to sleep? And Remendel goes, he says, he tells his friend, he says, you should know, his student. He says, you know, as soon as I, sh- I was shot, I was taken directly to Gan Eden. We're only the place, we're only the holy souls, the holy nishimot who die al Kiddush Hashem are allowed to entry. And I went to the highest, highest place. But there is one thing that I missed out. And Ali says, well, what did you miss out? And he says, I never got reward for that mitzvah of matzah. And he says, I'm coming over here to ask you as a, you know, a request, a favor. Can you please relinquish that reward for me? So he goes and he says, I, I, you know, I can't, I, I almost died for this mitzvah. This is such an important mitzvah for me. I can't, they almost killed me for this, for this mitzvah. I can't do it. I can't give it to you. And with that, he wakes up very abruptly, very, very troubled. He couldn't fall back asleep. When the morning came, he went over to the rabbi of the community. He was Rabbi Yitzchak Shlomo Unger. And he goes over and he tells him over the dream. And the rabbi says, listen, this dream is not, I, you know, I can't answer this. I'm going to send you to the big rabbi. The big rabbi at that time was Rabbi Avram Yehoshua Herschel Tversky. He says, go to the rabbi, speak to him. So he goes over to the rabbi and he says to the rabbi, he says, you know, this is the situation. What am I supposed to do? So the rabbi goes and says, you know, truthfully, the correct course of action is you should probably give this mitzvah to Remendel. And he says, correct course of action? What do you mean? He says, I almost died for this mitzvah. I went, I suffered, I did everything for it. And I let him do it. I, the only thing that I got was the reward. Why should I give this up as well? So the rabbi goes and says, you know, you're still alive. You're able to go and put on tefillin. You're able to go and put on tzitzit. You're able to go and learn. You're able to go and pray. You're able to go and fast on Yom Kippur. You're able to go and do all the mitzvot because you're still alive. But your friend, he has nothing. He has nothing left over. Only what he has done, that's all he has. He cannot do one additional mitzvah in the next world. He doesn't have any children furthermore. You have children. Everything that comes out from your children because of the chinuch that you gave them. All the mitzvot, they go in your merit. But he doesn't have anything. They all died. They all perished in the Holocaust. So the right thing for you to do is to give him that reward. Eli was very moved by this and says, you know what, fine. And the rabbi told him, says, tonight, you're going to go to the synagogue. When no one's around, you're going to open up the Elon Kodesh and you're going to speak to God and you're going to tell God, that you're going to speak the entire story. You're going to tell God, you say, I'm giving over my friend, Rav Mendel, the entire reward for the uh, eating of the matzah. And that's what he does. He goes and he gives the entire reward. That night he goes to sleep. And he dreams again. And this time, Rab Mendel comes over to him and his face is beaming. And he says, I want to thank you so much. I want to thank you so much for what you have given me. And this time, when Eli woke up, he felt a little bit different. He, all of a sudden, he didn't feel the pain anymore. Every night, he used to envision Rab Mendel with his head, you know, the shot. And it just like the, the scene just replayed again and again. All of a sudden, he realized that Rab Mendel is in a better place. But there's an amazing lesson that we can learn over here. We have over here Reb Mendel, a big rabbi, a tzaddik in his own right, son of a tzaddik as well. He grew up religious his entire life. He served God his entire life, never missed one achilah matzah, did the mitzvah to such a high level, that in the concentration camp when he couldn't do a mitzvah, he brought him to tears. He lost his wife and children and he still had a munam bidachon. And he died al-kiddush Hashem, says the Gemara Psachim. Page 58, that anybody who dies, Al-Kiddush Hashem, is elevated to a place in Gan Eden that nobody else could reach. Yet he still wanted to earn a higher place in the next world. There was one mitzvah that he wanted. There was one mitzvah that he missed out. Lesson number one, I'm going to give two lessons. Lesson number one is look at the value of one mitzvah. 
that no matter how high you can get into the next world, the value of one mitzvah is endless. So much so that he came begging his friend to go and bring him that one mitzvah so he could go that a little bit higher in the next world. But furthermore, lesson number two is that we can't imagine how much a mitzvah is worth when we do it with suffering. This mitzvah that they did with Matzah went through such difficulties. It wasn't easy to go and collect it. It wasn't easy to go pray. Even he died at Hashem. It's such a high level. This, the level that we have, the power that we have, when we do a mitzvah and it's difficult, is unbelievable. Rabbi Liao Desser goes and says, there was once a king, he brings a mashal. There was once a king, and this king was on his private yacht. And he was traveling, and all of a sudden a terrible storm broke out, and the, the, the ship sunk. And everybody perished in the ship, but the, the king was able to somehow go and survive on a piece of wood. And he floated off to this island, and he found this island where people didn't speak his language. And he went over to one person, and he tried to explain to him, you know, that he's a king from a different language, through like sign language, and he needs, you know, some accommodations, maybe he could just rest a little bit. And he found one native that says, okay, fine, you know, you know, come to me and you can rest and wash up by me. The king goes to his home, he rests, he washes up, he recuperates a little bit, and then he tells this native, he says he needs to go and travel to a faraway land in his house. And this native feels really bad. He says, you know what, I have a ship, I'll take you. He goes on this native ship, and they're not able to speak a word to each other. They don't know the language. And they travel to this um, to this kingdom. And the king says to the native, as the king, they come to shore, as the native wants to go back. And the king says, no, no, no. He says, I want you to come. I want you to come with me. And as the ship comes you know, to, to shore, all of a sudden the entire king's guard, which was, were searching for the king, they see the king. All of a sudden they come around and the native sees that this is some important person. He didn't realize it was a king. So he gets a little bit nervous. So he feels, okay, fine, I'll, you know, I'll come. I, you know, he feels like his, his life is in danger. And the key, he walks beside the king, and he brings him to the king. All of a sudden, he sees this huge palace. All of a sudden, the native realized, oh, this must be someone really powerful, really wealthy in this kingdom. And the king motions him to come, and he brings him downstairs to a cellar. And he says, what is the king going to put me in the dungeon now for after all that I've done for him? The king takes a key out, opens up this big steel door, and inside there is a room full of gold coins, jewels, you know, priceless material. And the king hands him a bag. And the king points and he says, pick up the stuff and put it in the bag. And he's saying it's for you as a reward for what you've done. Now, this native comes from a, let's call it a third world country. They don't use, or let's call it a sixth world country. They don't use gold. They, he, he's never seen this before. He's like, well, I don't understand what the king, the king wants me to work for him now? After everything that I've done, I have to go and collect stuff for the king? He says, well, you've got to be kidding me. And the king locks the door and he says, I can't believe it. And he gets so upset that he decides, you know, he throws the sack on the floor and he goes and he starts resting. And he rests up there and he dozes off and suddenly he hears footsteps in the distance. Hours go by, he hears footsteps and he wakes up and says, oh man, the king is over here, he's going to see that, I didn't do anything. He picks up a few small pebbles and he throws it into a sack. And the king opens up the door and he says, he puts a thumbs up and the guy is like, doesn't know what he says, he says, yeah, sure, whatever, thumbs up. And he says, okay, fine, he takes him out and he says, uh, he, tell, he tells the, the native, you know, you're free to go. And the native's like, I go? And he's like, yeah, you know, go ahead. And the native is like, oh, Baruch Hashem. And he goes and he leaves. And he starts walking to his ship. When he's walking to his ship, he suddenly sees somebody there from his native country. And he's like, oh, Baruch Hashem, I found somebody that can speak my language. And he starts telling him the whole story. He says, you know what happened? He says, I went and I saved this guy. And he tells him the whole story. And this native, which obviously was in the land, he knew the land, he's like, you, you know, you, got, you are in the king's land. He's like, I was in the king's land. Oh, I didn't know that was a king. He says, could you believe it? The king wanted me to work. He says, work, do what? And he shows him the sack. He says, look, he wanted me to pick up all his rocks and stones, but you know, I was smart. I picked up only little ones. I wasn't going to do any work for him after everything that I did. And the guy says, you fool. These are priceless gems. These are worth so much money. You should have taken the big things. You should have taken the large, the large stones, the large pieces of gold. The native, all of a sudden, felt so bad. <laughs> He's like, you got to be kidding me. When a person goes and realizes, says Rabbi Dester, how much each suffering is worth, he would go and pick up every suffering with treasure, polish it, and put it in his bag. A person, unfortunately, we despise hardships, and we don't ask for hardships, we don't want hardships. But if we get it, we have to realize that that small little bit of Yisurim is worth a fortune. It's treasures that we could carry with us to the next world. There was once a very pious tzaddik, and this tzaddik, 
he went and um, he had a very hard life. And in his, um, he had a friend over there that tried to go and, and make his life a little bit easier. And he goes over to the rabbi and says, listen, can you help this guy? He has such a hard life. He had, doesn't have panasa. He, his wife, and his wife makes sure he, she does not make him forget that. Every day, you know, where's the money? Where's this? You know, nagging at him. And all he does is, he says, learn to lie. He has such a hard life. Can you please pray for him? And the chacham, this, this big rabbi goes over to him and says, I don't understand. You have pity on your, on your, on this individual? He says, I don't have pity on your friend. He says, in fact, he has everything. He's learning to and he suffers from poverty. He's getting, that's the highest level. You know how much is, is, his Torah is worth because he's doing it out of poverty? Imagine his reward. Says Rav Yitzhak Blazer, says the Kach Be'ar. He goes, he says, I have pity on irreligious wealthy people. Why? Because what challenges do they face? How will they earn reward in the next world? What will they come to the next world with? We don't realize the value that each suffering comes. Again, we don't ask. We don't want. But if it comes, we have to realize its value. One of the greatest Torah sages in the early 19th century was a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Akiva Eger. And his son-in-law, the Chassam Sofer, mentions about his father-in-law that he had a very difficult life. From the age of 16, he suffered every single day. And Rabbi Akiva Eger was such a great scholar. Every single Gemara, you know, any yeshiva that you go to, they learn Rabbi Akiva Eger. It's like a, a huge, huge rabbi that we can't even understand the caliber that he, that he reached. And Rabbi Kiva Eger, when he was about to pass away, he requested that only, some, only one line should be written on his tombstone. And he says he doesn't want Gadol, he doesn't want Gaon, Big Rabbi, he didn't want any of that. He wanted one little passage. Four words. Saval Yisurim Kol Yamav. Four words. Suffered, he, he endured suffering all his days. And Rabbi Kiva Eger goes and says, I had so much suffering in my life. But I never ever questioned God. And this rabbi who wrote commentaries, who wrote Shalot Shuvat, who had who le- the biggest rabbi of the generation. You know, he says, the Torah, that's not my ticket to the next world. My ticket to the next world was my suffering. My suffering that I never questioned God. The value that we have with this suffering. Even more so, look at the Rambam, Maimonides. Maimonides lives about 70 years. On his tombstone, if you go to Tveria, on his, on his, uh, uh, on his uh, Kevel, it says, Mimosha ad Moshe lokam kemosha. Meaning, from Moshe, meaning Moses, Moshe Rabbeinu, until Moshe, which is Maimonides, uh, Maimonides Rambam's name was Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, there was nothing like Moshe. Meaning that he was such a high level that from Moshe Rabbeinu until the Rambam, there was no other Moshe. From Moshe to Moshe, there was no, there was no one like Moshe. Now, what type of life did the Rambam live? Everybody knows the Rambam. Maimonides, there are hospitals that, out, that, are, meant, that are named after. Like, even nowadays in the secular world, Maimonides is famous. The first half of the Rambam's life, of Maimonides' life, will live with struggles. When he was just 13 years old, his hometown was invaded by army, and they forced the Jews either to convert or to be exiled. So, together his father and his brother and the Rambam, they left, and they spent the next 12 years on the run. They finally settled in Morocco. In Morocco, however, they continued to endure persecution. Finally, at the age of 30 years old, the Rambam settled in El in Israel. But he had to leave a short while later because of the difficult conditions over there. So where did they move? They moved to Egypt. And only six months after he moved into Egypt, the Rambam, Maimani's father, passed away. One year later, his two children died, and then his wife died. Shortly afterwards, his brother, who was supporting Rambam, died as well. He was now left alone, without any family, without any money. And he didn't want to go and accept money for learning Torah, so he had medical knowledge. He used his medical knowledge to make a living. This is at the age of 35. But the age of 35, he's going, and finally his life turns around a little bit. He remarried. He became the most prominent doctor in the kingdom. He became the, the doctor to the ruler of Egypt, the sultan of Egypt. He was also the rabbinical leader of the Egyptian jury at the time. He had more children after that, including his son, the famous Rabbi Avraham ben Arambam, who became a very noted rabbi. And the Chafetz Chaim noted something very, very interesting. He says that the Rambam, Maimonides' magnum opus, his main work, his colossal work, was the Mishnah Torah. The Mishnah Torah, he codified all the halachot in the Talmud. He went and he collected the, all the halachot from the Gemara and he organized it into sections. When did he write that? 
says the Chavetz Chaim. He wrote that, that was composed during the first half of the Rambam's life, during his struggles, during his wandering, during his persecutions. During his most difficult years, that is when the Rambam received the greatest divine assistance. And he composed one of the greatest masterpieces, not of his time, of entire time of Torah or literature. So instead of feeling sorry for himself, he went and he pushed himself and he brought himself to a level that he is known, Mi Moshe, Ad Moshe, Lokam Kemoshe. To such a high level. The difficulties, that's where he got his greatness, from the difficulties. You know, unfortunately people go and they think that God picks on them. That nothing ever goes smoothly. You have a hard time with Shiduchim. And then have a hard time with uh, children. Then you have a hard time with Panasan. Then you have health issues. And then this and that. Everything is for me is falling apart. But for everybody else, it seems to be working out great. They need to realize that God doesn't pick on you. Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky goes and explains the Gemara in Bachot, page 13b. It says, Kol lo yamav Somebody who goes in Shema Yisrael and stretches out the word Echad, prolongs his recitation of the word Echad, then is blessed with a long life. And the question that Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky asks is, why are we, we singling out the word Echad? We have other words. Why are we single out the last word that has to be stretched and that's what's going to make you live a long life? He explains Rabbi Yaakov Galinsky and goes on and says, many people think that God helps their friend with the business and God helps his other friend with the marriage and God helps his other friend with the you know, with the children and with the vacations and with hell and with all different things. God helps everybody else. But for me, God doesn't help me. God picks on me. Our sages teach us, what is that? Why? What is the echad? Echad is Shema Yisrael. Listen, Israel, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem is our God. Hashem echad. There's one God. The same God that benefits your friend and benefits your other friend. He also does for you for your benefit. And with that attitude, gives us so much blessing. So the next time we say Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem echad, we stretch out the word echad. Just a little bit. Why? Because that shows that there's one God. For everything that happens in my life, no matter the good, the bad, or the ugly, it's all good. Everything that God does, God is, does for the best. We have to utilize this important, important aspect of the difficulties, whether we see it, whether we don't, it's all for our best. And when we're able to do that, we're able to continue our life and living our life in a sense of happiness, and a sense of tranquility, a sense of peace. And with that, we're going to be able to continue doing the mitzvot. And when we continue doing the mitzvot with this type of peace and happiness and serenity, even though you have difficulty, each little suffering adds it up to a hundred times, a hundred times, a hundred. There's an infinite amount. Let us tap into it. Again, we're not asking God for difficulties. We're not asking God for suffering. But any little suffering, if we have that, let us utilize those moments to go and achieve the greatest possible achievement that we could achieve in our lifetime. And that is doing the mitzvot with happiness and accepting it with happiness. And with that, we'll open up for any questions. Question number one we have over here is, you could type in the questions, um, why specifically 100 times? Uh, it's a good question. That's what the Avaz the Rav Nassim brings down. The reasoning behind it, I, I am unaware. So if anybody does know, please, uh, please do uh, share. Okay, seems like we're... No questions, uh, that's all. that looks like the final question. Okay, chazak You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.